Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. Welcome. This is Palm Sunday. If you're watching this on the day that we're we're posting it, it's Palm Sunday 2022. It's the beginning of what we traditionally call Holy Week, this time where we commemorate the moment during the Passover season when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, and ultimately uh, is suffered hangs on a cross to die for our sins, and then at the end, Easter Sunday, is resurrected back into life. It's a busy, busy week for us now because it was a busy week for him and for the disciples, and and a seminal moment in what it means to know who our Savior is in the life of Jesus and clearly in the work of Jesus, what he has done for us. Palm Sunday is the day when we highlight that entry, that time when he comes into town, it is, it is filled with, with images of strength and courage and excitement and energy. It's called Palm Sunday because as he's entering the town riding a donkey and, and all of his disciples are around him, the people are taking off parts of their clothes, their coats, and laying it on the ground. And they're laying palms on the ground in front of him so that as he walks in, he's walking in almost a, a grand entry. It's a, it's a kind of entry reserved only for kings in that time, people that, with which they held great reverence to their power. They knew what they were capable of and that they had dominion over their lives. And so that's the kind of entry he's getting. Can you imagine being one of those disciples in that moment, kind of... Are you kidding me? This is it. This is what we've been doing for the last three and a half years. We've been walking around with Jesus. We've been traveling with him. We've, we've watched him heal people. We've heard his teachings. We've gone out and proclaimed him. This is the moment. This is the time when we're entering Jerusalem. And, and this is when Jesus, and I really believe they, they thought this at the time, that this is when Jesus is going to cause all the Romans to lay down all their weapons and establish his earthly kingdom. Now we know that that's not the case. We know that his earthly kingdom comes a bit later, but it's the eternal kingdom, the heavenly kingdom that Jesus came to first establish, this eternity that he promises for all those who follow him. But in that moment, they are undoubtedly so just over the moon excited with anticipation going, this is what could happen next. It's beginning. It's happening. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. And then the next day, Monday comes, and Jesus is in the temple, clearing the temple and saying to the the money changers who have ripped off the people, uh, no, you're not going to do that here. This is a house of prayer. My father declared this a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. You're not going to do this. So they're watching still with I'm sure an adrenaline rush, right? This is one of the few places in the Gospels that we see Jesus get angry. He's mad. He's flipping over tables. He's mad at what they've done to to his father, to his image, and to what it means to be a follower of God and their abuse of power on top of that. So they've got to still be going, yes, this is awesome. This is incredible. And on Tuesday, he's arguing with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people of the time. He's fighting with them and and trying to help them to understand the, the mistakes they're making, trying to help them understand that he is in fact the Messiah and that God is here, he is present, and he is calling them to recognize that and to lead their lives differently, to to pledge their allegiance to him, to to come to him, to know him, to find mercy and grace that only Jesus offers. And then it almost like on Wednesday, almost like this this they hit this massive adrenaline cliff, right? On Wednesday, we just see things kind of pause. 
as Jesus takes a breather, as they're preparing for the Passover day and they're they're take the Passover supper and which is going to be on Thursday and they're they're taking the time to pray and to get ready for what is to come next. It's 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 it feels like I'm sure the calm before the storm, right? Where you're just kind of getting prepared and getting ready and taking an opportunity to take stock of where you are and and what you're about to do. And then we see this moment on Thursday that is celebrated by Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. If you have an opportunity to join us actually on Good Friday of this week, uh, in person, we are going to be doing a combination. We are going to do a drama of The Last Supper. We have some incredible people that are going to do that, that are going to immerse us in it, involve us in it. We're going to fold it into what we call our threefold communion. It's something that we do several times a year. Most particularly, we do it at this time of year, at Easter, at the Passover season. And we, we take the opportunity to do many of the things that Jesus did for his disciples and with his disciples in this last supper. We wash each other's feet. We take the opportunity to share of the bread and the cup, right? And we take the opportunity to eat a meal together, to share a love feast together, just as they did in the last supper. This last supper is this complex set of emotions and moments where Jesus is is telling his disciples that it's time. Right? The hour is upon us, and, I, and I'm ready to fulfill the purpose that God has given me in sending me here. I'm ready to go, and I want to bless you, and I, I want to remind you that you are my brothers in Christ. You are my brothers now and my family. You're not just friends. You're family now. This matters. This is important. Something has changed. And all the while, um, he knows. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And even go so far as to call it out and say, one of you's going to. And they are all incredulously going, no, it couldn't be me. It couldn't be me. I can't imagine the mixed emotions going on there. And then late in that evening, after the meal, we find Jesus praying and we find Judas doing exactly what he said. And just this crazy, crazy scenario of Judas walking up to Jesus and kissing him in order to tell the guards which one was Jesus so they could take him. That just sounds crazy. And then, of course, there's Friday. Friday, that day when Jesus is beaten, that Friday when Jesus is put on trial before Herod and before Pilate and before the the Sanhedrin, that, that Friday when he is lied about, when he is beaten and mocked, that Friday when he's forced to carry his cross and people are pulled out, Simon the Cyrene in particular is pulled out of the audience to help him carry it because the Romans and the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish leaders of the time are going, this is going to happen. We're going to make sure nothing is going to stop this. He is going to be hung on a cross today. He is going to die today. And it's there where we're going to spend some time in today's service, in today's lesson. In particular, we're going to spend time in Luke's gospel. That's where we've been all along and where we'll we'll be all the way through the Easter Sunday. But in Luke's gospel, we see this picture drawn of Jesus hanging on the cross between two criminals who are also hanging on the cross, one to his right and one to his left. 
John, in, in his gospel, doesn't even refer to them as criminals. He just says there are two men, one on either side of Jesus, one to his right and one to his left, that are being crucified with him. So they're, they're going through the same thing he is. They have nails through their wrists. They wouldn't put it through your hand because it would rip it out. So they have nails through their wrists, right, and through their ankles. And the way the cross works without getting too graphic, maybe I already have, but without getting much worse, um, essentially you need your strength in your muscles and your arms and your legs to hold you up so you can breathe. As your legs weaken and tire, you sag and, and it pulls up on your diaphragm and you're unable to breathe. It, in other words, it is a slow suffocation that you're keenly aware of because as you weaken and you're unable to hold yourself up, the life is literally drained from your lungs and from you. And these two criminals are doing the same thing. Matthew and Mark also refer to them, but they, they do go as far as to call them two criminals, saying even the two criminals who were there with him taunted him, made fun of him, as, as though being mocked by the crowds and, and the Jews and, and the soldiers wasn't enough. Here they are making fun of him as well. Luke, though, gives us a unique picture. He actually discusses or lays out the conversations that Jesus had while hanging on the cross with those two criminals. And that's mind-boggling. You'd be hanging on a cross, have and that kind of torture, having a conversation with people. But we're going to first take a look at who Jesus is and what he's done on that cross and how people responded, how he responded to being there with the crowds and all those others around him. And ultimately, we're going to take a look at that conversation that he has with the criminals on the cross. To do that, we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. We're going to start with 32 through 38. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible. Follow along with me. It says this, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, and your translation might say Golgotha, which literally means the place of the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and they cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. I can almost see the air quotes. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him that said, This is the king of the Jews. So that Word, that inscription on that sign is meant to be mocking. It's meant to be, oh yeah? Who is this guy that you claim to be your king? And I would imagine that the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people, probably had every bit something to do with putting that sign up. They're trying to send a message that you put your faith in this Messiah. Well, here he is. He's not the one. You still have to turn back to us. The, the Greek word that Luke uses here is a generic word for lawbreaker when he's describing the criminals. The word for criminals, that. It's just a generic lawbreaker. Matthew and Mark choose a different word. Uh, the word is lestus, and it, it describes a bandit or a revolutionary. 
Luke uses that word too earlier. He uses it in Luke chapter 22. As Jesus has betrayed, or Judas, oops, Judas has betrayed Jesus with a kiss as they're in the garden. And he says, have you, in verse 52 of chapter 22, it says, have you come out, this is Jesus talking, have come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal, a lestus, a revolutionary, abandoned. Luke chooses different words here for this section that we're talking about because he wants to make something clear. Jesus is decidedly not what they are accusing him of being. And yet they treated him that way regardless. They treated him the same way. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Here's the complicated piece. First, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of God's people, they're the ones who put him before Pilate and Herod and tried to get him in trouble. They're the ones who took him into custody. They're the ones who are trying to stop all of this. They absolutely knew he was not what he was being accused of, that he was not a bandit, that he was not a revolutionary, at least not in an earthly sense. They knew it. What he was was a threat to their power, not to the Romans, but they tried to bring them in. They knew Jesus was not what they were saying he was. Pilate and Herod, the governor and the king of the area, also knew that he was not guilty of any crime. Just before this section, Jesus is brought before both of them and kind of this bounce back and forth kind of a hot potato of, of Jesus going, I don't want him, you take him. He didn't do me, I don't, uh-uh, nope. I, he's done nothing. I don't want to be responsible for this in the eyes of God. It's the, as though these two guys that weren't followers of God at least could recognize that Jesus wasn't a criminal, right? They go so far as to say, look, you brought this guy before me. They tell the Sanhedrin, I have no grounds. It says in Luke chapter 23, verses 14 and 15, it says, but in fact, after examining him, Jesus, in your presence, Sanhedrin guys, I'm standing right in front of you. I've examined him. You've, we've heard the questions. I've heard your responses. He says, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things that you accuse him of. <laughs> and... So, so what is it when Jesus says they know not what they do? What is it that they didn't know they were doing? Because it certainly wasn't that they didn't know they were accusing an innocent man. They did. It wasn't that they didn't know that he was clearly had been exonerated before the king and the governor as this is not cool. The, the law had said this is not cool. The physical law, that's just the, not just God's law and the spiritual law. So all of it is, this guy's not guilty of any of this. And anybody observing the facts of the case could see that. It's just blatantly obvious he's done nothing. What, so what did they know? Well, they, they truly did not realize that they were killing their own savior. <laughs> that they were biting the hand that feeds them, that they were destroying or burning their escape ladder. The thing that was gonna give them an opportunity to find salvation permanently, eternally with God, to heal their relationship with him, they didn't realize what the consequences of their actions were, how grand they were. I think it's still that way. I think we still, in our world, human beings, those who do not yet know Christ, we still deny his role as Savior. That We still ignore the reality that 
we are going to die until we absolutely have to deal with it. And then, and then it kind of comes at us like a ton of bricks, right? Where we are, we are frightened and we are angry and we are hurt and we ignore that. We think we can control all of it ourselves. We delude ourselves into believing that. And, and, and there are so many in this world that continue to mock him to mock him and his people and what they do and what they say. And the thing is, they don't know what they are doing. But Jesus' response here in saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. It tells us something about what he knows. First of all, he's not afraid of them. He's not afraid of what they are doing or what they can do to him, at least not to his physical body, because he knows his purpose. He knows why he's here, and he knows what he is offering. He also knows his eternity and the eternity of those who are following him. He knows what that salvation is, and it's the salvation that he offers all of us who are members of the body of Christ. If you are one of his people, it's the same thing he's offering you. This I, I got a quote from a, a, a nun a while back. Her name is Mother Angelica, and it says this, salvation brings the soul, or I would say, at least it should, bring the soul a deep awareness of God's love. Life takes on more meaning for it now has purpose. It's that purpose and that meaning and that focus on what the truth is and what Jesus is, knows and is bringing and offering that should allow us to step beyond those fears. It certainly has Jesus. There's no indication here that he's scared of what they can do to him. He also wasn't mad or resentful, right? He wasn't mad at them or resentful of them. In fact, he intercedes with them for or for them on their behalf with God. If we look back at Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It says this, he's living, Jesus is living this out. It says, even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full, but love your enemies. There it is, doing what is good. Love what your, your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And then your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful just as your father is also merciful. Jesus is demonstrating this level of blessing and mercy that is so hard for us to wrap our minds around and to execute, to be this way with others who are persecuting us, the others who we believe would do us harm, others who are mocking Jesus, others who are trying to harm us in some way, shape, or form, spiritually or physically. And in our country, we're very blessed. Usually it's at this point in our time frame, it's less physical challenges and fears, but it's often spiritual ones where those who are attacking against us and saying, you follow this Jesus guy, what's wrong with you? You want He wants you to be holy, what's wrong with you? He wants you to abstain from sex before marriage. Well, dude, that's just stupid, right? They're, they're, they're making fun of it and tearing down what Jesus would call us to do and be. And Jesus says, look, respond with grace. Love them, be merciful to them. And, and how blessed we are to have a God and Savior that does that for us as he's doing it for them right now. He's calling us to do the same for those around us.
But then we get in this conversation with the actual criminals. This is unique to Luke's gospel. It's Luke 23. We're going to read verses 39 through 43. Check this out. It's out of the CSB. It says, the one, the one, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Are you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God? since you are undergoing the same punishment? If we are punished justly, we are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise says that one of the criminals was yelling at Jesus. That word, the Greek word there is blasphemeo, right? It's where we get the word blaspheme. He's railing at Jesus and screaming at Jesus and, and saying horrible, nasty, ugly things, which when you're in a ton of pain and death is imminent and you have no salvation, isn't awfully surprising, right? We often lash out when we feel like we're threatened. And that's Unfortunately, that's the case not just for people who don't know God, but oftentimes for people who do, right? As we don't truly recognize or remember or embrace our, the salvation and the mercy and the grace that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. We don't always remember that in the moment of pain. And so he is screaming nasty things at Jesus because quite frankly, he is hurting and he is angry. And that's a normal human response. It's a normal human response. And, and yet Jesus doesn't yell back. Jesus doesn't argue with him. Instead, Jesus turns his attention to the one that is willing to listen. The one who, as he is dying, instead of being angry and lashing out when he is threatened, right? His whole life is being threatened. The one who has reached this moment of truth that, that Jesus is innocent and yet receiving the same punishment that a thief deserves. And Jesus responds with grace. Paul discusses it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, when you're coming from, as he's describing what it means to come to salvation in Jesus, to come from death to life. Right? He says in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Here's Jesus on the cross with these two men who are both guilty of their sins. They are in the very final, last moments of their lives. They are literally, as we discussed before, taking their final breaths. And it's, it's when their strength gives out, they will have nothing more to offer in hoping to save themselves. There's nothing left. And all the way up to the very last possible minute, Jesus is offering grace. Jesus is offering to the one who comes to know him and comes to recognize that he is innocent of all things, that he came here to die on a cross to atone for the evil that you and I have done, and frankly, some of the bad things we continue to do. As long as there is a breath of life in your body and mine, 
there is an opportunity to come to the grace of Jesus Christ, to ask for God's mercy. That opportunity remains open to you and I and to the entirety of the world. Jesus recognized that. Jesus, if you have yet to come to him, he is cheering for you. And I would implore you, don't wait till the last possible minute. That seems kind of crazy. Do it now. Choose to come to know him now. He is offering you grace and mercy beyond measure. Anything you've done, anything you've said, any mistakes you have made, any things you wish you hadn't had done but didn't do. We've talked about in the last couple of weeks, any of those things that weigh on your soul or that harmed others, God can forgive, God can let go of, and God can say, truly, you will be with me in paradise. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but when your time comes, as it does for all of us, you will be with me. As followers of God, we ought to remember that too. We ought to remember that God, up to the very last minute, did not give up on anyone. He will not give up on anyone, and we ought not either. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor, and may he give you peace. God bless.